0: Welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today we are grateful to have with us Pastor Mark Jeske. Based out of Milwaukee, Pastor Mark hosts a 30 minute television program called Time of Grace. To see where Time of Grace airs locally in your area, visit timeofgrace.org. And now, here's Pastor Mark. It is a thrill to be here. Actually, it's a thrill to be anywhere but Wisconsin right now. How smug can you get being in the desert when it's like this? Man. I, my key may not work in the lock tomorrow, or not tomorrow, later this week when I uh, end up getting back, because I told my wife yesterday it was seventy four, but the wind chill made it feel like seventy one. <laughs> How can you not love living here? This, this is like paradise. God loves Arizona, doesn't he? Speaking of Arizona. How many of you have ever been to Wickenburg? Oh, man, most of you have. You know where the Vulture Gold Mine is? Yeah? That's kind of a big big tourist thing, isn't it? I'm kind of fascinated by the Vulture Gold Mine because it's actually the cause of the founding of Phoenix. You know, that was there before Phoenix was here. And after the first gold rush to California, some of the people who didn't get to California in time hung around here and there were some gold strikes and it was gold fever in here in Arizona. And the the way I hear it, the Vulture mine was the biggest gold mine in all of Arizona, pumped out millions and millions of dollars worth of gold over the years. But finally the mines were played out and it didn't make any economic sense any longer to invest in trying to extract a smaller and smaller amount of gold every year. So during World War II, President Roosevelt shut the mines down, and they've never reopened. Actually, the mines had been declining for a long time and no longer generated a really significant boom. And uh, Vulture City and uh, Wickenburg kind of started to fade, and agriculture is what took over. One of the prospectors figured out that the mines were someday going to be played out, and he invested in irrigating. He found some old Indian irrigation uh, ditches and he decided they were onto something there and he redug those got capitalized redug them and uh, the farming along the salt river is what led to phoenix and it's an ex- astonishing growth here in the valley but I, as i'm thinking about played out gold mines and the impact that that has on a community when its main source of income shrivels up it made me think the i have a, I have a crazy mind that makes strange associations but it made me think of philippi <laughs> in the Bible. You know where Philippi is? If your life was depending on it, could you find Philippi on a map? You know where it is? You know where Macedonia is? is that? Are we getting closer? You know where Greece is? How about Greece? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, there we go. Greece, uh, ancient, amazing country, juts down into the Mediterranean. It, there's like a football hanging on the end of it by a thread. That's the Peloponnesus. That's where Sparta was. The mainland juts down between the Aegean Sea on one side and the Adriatic on the other. And that's where Athens is, the the place of the the Parthenon. Ancient, it's it's the birthplace of the concept of democracy. Um, It's the fount of the Greek language in which God gave us the New Testament. But to the north were their wild cousins, the Macedonians, who spoke Greek, but they did not have that long tradition of law and education and the arts. They were warriors. The Greeks themselves never built an empire. They influenced all of the eastern Mediterranean. But you never hear of a Greek empire, but there was a Macedonian empire. And uh, one of their kings, a very aggressive guy named Philip, Found gold on the superhighway that linked the two ends of his kingdom. The what later came to be called the Ignatian Road, the Romans named it that was an extremely important superhighway, an interstate, basically linking the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean Sea, or backwards, I'm, I'm doing it as it makes sense to me, it be for you be from the Adriatic to the Aegean. And on that road there was a pinchy place where It funneled down. There was a big swamp on one side and rugged mountains on the other. It's the only way you could get through. And so he fortified that place right where the gold mines were and that he modestly named after himself. He called, since his name was Philip, he thought, what would be a good name for this? How about Philip City? Wouldn't that be good? Yeah, that'd be good. And so the city of Philippi grew rapidly and developed and not only pumped out a lot of gold, but he built a mint there. So that actually became... The source of wealth of the of the, the Kingdom of Macedonia, his son Alexander, you may have heard of Alexander the Great, was a phenomenal warrior and, with a small band of tightly disciplined soldiers, went on a rampage of conquest to the east, knocked out mighty Persia, the one you know the Persia of the Bible of Queen Esther and uh, King Cyrus, and knocked them out, took them out. He went all the way to the Indus River, what is now Pakistan. Can you believe that? With 20,000 soldiers, turned around and came back and caught malaria in Babylon and died. But on this road now, in, in Macedon, was the city of Philippi, whose gold mines then began to decline. On that plain, he also partially drained the swamp and it began to get more agricultural. And on that plain, about a hundred years before the book of Philippians, where I want to read with you something, do a little Bible digging today, on that plain next to Philip City was a gigantic civil war. In fact, it became the Gettysburg of the Roman Empire. It's where the titanic battle between the two forces uh, uh, fighting for power in the new empire, the Romans. These Italians now supplanted the Macedonians as the power in, in, uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. And after Julius Caesar was assassinated, there was a terrible power vacuum. His, you know, uh, let's play a little trivia. Who put the knife into Julius Caesar? Brutus, excellent. He and his fellow conspirator were trying to bring back the old days of the republic Julius Caesar had figured out the empire, it's too big. We need to be an empire. For efficiency, you can't have the Senate squabbling and fighting all the time. It it is insufficient. And Julius Caesar tried to transform uh, Italy into an empire and got partway there until Brutus put a knife in him. Brutus was trying to bring back the old republic Uh, It was a forlorn attempt, but he persuaded the the Romans' bitter enemies, the Parthians, to join him. And he and his conspirator, Cassius, met in battle with Julius Caesar's heir, Octavian. Uh, He wasn't known by this yet, but you know him from the Bible as Caesar Augustus. And Octavian and his fellow general, Mark Antony, met with their two armies in a terrific collision on the plains of Philippi, right outside the place we're going to be walking to with Paul in just a minute. And these two armies, actually about the same size as the armies in uh, Pennsylvania at Gettysburg, they, they had roughly 100,000 soldiers apiece, big for the ancient world. Imagine how big a plane you need to get that many people all fighting at the same time. And they came together in two terrific impacts uh, several weeks apart. And Brutus and Cassius were defeated, their armies completely demolished and all surrendered. The only way you could live is if you would agree to join the other army. And what uh, Octavian did, soon to be anointed as Caesar Augustus, is he he seized a lot of that farmland and he gave it to his military veterans. So in Philippi, where we're going to be going today, you have a Greek city... Financially depressed because the gold mines are played out, just like the vulture mines here in the Phoenix area. But you also have Italians, Roman military veterans, who were given free land as their booty or their like their pension for serving in the military. Uh, if you managed to live as a soldier in the ancient world, you could often die wealthy because of the plunder that you would get. This is where God wanted his gospel to go. In this very important place, financially distressed, used to be wealthy and prominent, but the game had changed and the circus moved on and it's now fading. It must have still had some money around because we also in the scripture meet a woman named Lydia who ran a luxury goods business in Philippi. Uh, it's like a Gucci store in, in Gary, Indiana. You know, it's... Uh, no, if you're from if if you're from Gary, I, I apologize. That was a cheap shot. <clears throat> but you got to understand how, what a big deal this was. Paul didn't even want to go there on his second missionary journey. Paul's vision was, I got to stay with people like me. Where is Paul from? Where's his hometown? Who knows? Show off a little bit of your Bible knowledge. Tarsus, excellent. Tarsus is on the southern coast of what I'll call Asia Minor. Today it's Turkey, but it's going to be a thousand years before the Turks show up in that part of the world. Back in the pre-Turk era, this was the western part of Asia. In fact, speaking of Asia, most of what happened in the Bible happened in the continent of Asia, didn't it? The Bible's an Asian book. Little bit of Africa in there, some forays down into Egypt, and we meet an Ethiopian. But most of the Bible takes place in Asia, in Western Asia. And that's the limit of Paul's imagination. On his first missionary journey, commissioned by the Spirit, he took a circular trip through the middle of what is today Turkey. Back then, it was Asia Minor, Now, by now incorporated into the Roman Empire, and it's a number of different provinces. In the Bible, you run it into the names of those provinces. The province of Asia, the province of Bithynia, Cappadocia, Galatia, those, uh, in fact, one of the books of the Bible is named after the one of the central regions. That's where Paul went on his first journey. On his second journey, he was going to do the same thing, just go on a, a loop, a circle through central Turkey. And the, the craziest thing happened. He couldn't turn left. It's like he put his left directional on. Okay, he and whoever was traveling with him at the time, all right, it's time to turn around and Kind of head back. He couldn't turn left. Isn't that the, the craziest thing? God would not let him bend to the left. So he said, All right, then, well, I guess let's turn right to go back. So we'll go through Bithynia and go around this way. So he's trying to turn right and couldn't do it. The Spirit of the Lord would not let him get on the roads that would turn him around to go the other direction. Couldn't go in reverse. So he reluctantly went forward until he hit a wall, the wall of the Aegean Sea. He came to Troas, or Troy. You've heard of the Trojan War. And there he stopped, stopped dead in his tracks, and could not take the hints God was giving him. So God did what he often does when he has to persuade people to do something they sort of don't want to do, or find so unbelievable they would not do while they're wide awake. He talks to them in their sleep. He sneaks up on them when their defenses are down. And he showed this Asian man the picture of a European begging him to come and share the gospel. And while in Troy, there's his own like mini Trojan war, a struggle of expanding his brain to be as big as God's vision for his church. I, I love Europeans too. That's not a wall in front of you. It's just water. Paul, get on a boat. You can slide over the water. And he did. He I guess God wants me to go to Europe. And so the, his coming to Philippi was the reaching of a continent that used to be the property of Satan, and Christ now wants to lay claim on those people. And Paul lands in Neapolis, but doesn't stay there. That's the port city. And he took a day's walk and goes to the ancient but fading and now impoverished city of Philippi. Philip City, once a mighty fortress, once the gold mine and the mint of the Macedonian Empire, now it's just fading like the rust belt played out minds, and the people who live there now are poor. But still a lot of people there. Some were descendants of the Roman military veterans. They probably spoke Itali- uh, Latin. Not, it wasn't any Italian yet. Spoke Latin. There were Greek speakers there. And there, there was a Hebrew synagogue. The Jews had little colonies of people all over the place where they'd been scattered. And Paul took that d- a day's walk from the port up to Philippi, walked right through the Gettysburg battlefield, Battle of Philippi, where uh, Brutus and Cassius had been defeated 100 years earlier, probably thinking uh, a little bit about um, imagining the thunder of horses' hooves and the smashing sound of swords clanging on shields, the screams and grunts and groans of battle, the people gurgling blood as they were dying, imagining what it must have been like when 200,000 people simultaneously were trying to kill each other on the very road he was walking on to get up to Philippi. In Philippi, he has a marvelous experience, meets Lydia, the seller of luxury goods. She's got an outpost for extremely expensive purple cloth. I'm amazed there was still a market there, but there must have been a few wealthy people where she could make a few bucks selling her clothes, her cloth, her purple cloth. They met a tormented young woman who was possessed by a demon demon. He was gentle with her, but finally could not stand it any longer to see how she was being, like, just jerked around by this demon. And he cast the demon out and set her free. But that caused such a ruckus that he was be- arrested, beaten, and put in the stocks. His feet were were locked up. And yet God used his hardships that day, his aching, bruised body, and he and Silas Sat there. You can't sleep when your feet are in the stocks. I'm sure he was exhausted. But all you can do is sit there with your legs out straight, uh, trying to kill time. So what do you think Paul and Silas were doing in Philippi in prison? They were singing. They weren't cursing. They weren't plotting revenge. They were singing. Well, as long as we're awake, might as well sing. Let's sing some hymns. What do you know? So he and Silas took turns teaching each other songs. And that hardship provided the platform to convert the jailer who almost committed suicide when an earthquake busted open the doors. Isn't that incredible? That God used Paul's hardships as a platform for transformation of Paul and other people. That's a little clue. It's a little, little heads up. Paul got launched a wonderful congregation there. He didn't stay real long. He saw he had enough leaders and he trusted them, gave them the keys to everything and said, you got enough. Now you know enough to get busy and be dangerous. And he moved on to Thessalonica. But he never forgot those people. And while he was traveling, he was able to devote his full energy to serving them. Unlike in Corinth, where he had to work to support himself. Because they weren't very generous in Corinth, at least at first. They held on to their, their gold pieces way tighter in Corinth, though Corinth was much wealthier. If, if uh, you think of Philippi as uh, like Wickenburg or the vulture gold mines played out and declining in economy, or like Gary, Indiana, where the steel mills have closed and moved on and the people of Gary are still there, but there's no jobs anymore. Um, Corinth was like Chicago, booming and bustling, a cr- crossroads of the ancient world. But the Corinthians were so cheap, Paul had to work a side job in order to eat. Not so in Philippi. Those poor people generously gave of their meager resources to feed him so he could put his full energy into teaching him. And that's, I'm sorry for the long buildup, but that's what you need to be thinking about as you hear these words from Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice... Greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Paul is writing now about 10 years later. His third journey has been completed. He was arrested in Rome, uh, excuse me, in uh, in Jerusalem and taken to Rome. It took two or three years to get him there. In the meantime, he was Uh, imprisoned constantly, suffered a shipwreck, but finally made it to Rome where he was imprisoned. And in fact, if if I wanted to pull a kind of cheap stunt today, I would have given my message to you in chains. I would have had chains around my arms and had me tethered to a ring here, bolted to the floor. Because when Paul is writing these words, he's writing them as a prisoner, literally chained down like a wild animal, though he had never broken any law of God or man. This was all out of envy and jealousy. And yet God used his imprisonment as a platform to spread the gospel. God used his hardship. I can add one more H uh, to the H's you've been thinking about uh, for Jesus, the healer, the hurts and the hang-ups. You might add another H, hardships. God used his hardships to change and transform him and to provide a platform for him to witness to people he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise and to take the hard edges off his life and soften his own heart because of pain. Pain, pain softens you. It, it humbles you. And humility is something we all need to relearn often because pride is a destroyer of soul. Our soul's... And pride is a destroyer of relationships with each other and with God. And hardship grinds down your pride. But to be low is not such a very bad thing. In fact, um, isn't that the L that in Crosswalk is to lower yourself to become a servant? Paul's hardships and his imprisonment only made him more dangerous to Satan and more valuable to God's team. Now he's writing to them. In fact, if I could just share with you a little description he gave of the Philippians to the tightwads in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul had said, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, get that extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. And he used the I'm back, am I back? I'm in and out. He used their extreme poverty as a spur to get these more well-to-do Corinthians to kind of be ashamed of of their tight-fistedness and to loosen up and to be more generous. So he tells the Philippians now, Ten years after the founding of the congregation, writing and dictating with chains on his arms, I rejoice that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. He had become resilient. His hardships did not crush him or break him down. They made him resilient. They toughened him up. They made him flexible. They made him humble. May I suggest to you that the hardships in your life are not because God doesn't love you, but they're because he does love you. God gives you as much, I think, as he dares. The more material things I can see in my life now as I'm aging, the more comfortable I get, the less I feel that I need God. The more material things God gives me, the potentially sicker I get. I don't need him as much, and I don't need other people either. The times in my life when I've had the least is when I prayed the most. The times when I struggled the most is when I read the Bible most intensely. And the hardships in my life didn't beat me down. They just made me more resilient. They made me more of a servant heart. They gave me compassion for other people who are struggling. But the more I've had, the higher I've gotten in life, and the more comfortable my life, the more I feel the urge to look down at other people. That's weird. I think God is pressing things. And if he has taken things away from you, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he does love you. Because his agenda for you maybe doesn't exactly align with your agenda for yourself. His agenda for you is to get you in heaven whatever it takes. And he'll do that. He works it both ways. Sometimes by pampering and spoiling you. And sometimes by taking things from you. By subtracting from you. By allowing you to go through hardships. But that's the healer at work. He's healing you of addiction to things. He's healing you of being too full of yourself. He's healing you to soften your hard heart. So that you have tenderness with others the stragglers and strugglers all around you. Paul said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I've become resilient. I have become serene. I love my life. It's chains. Rattling It's chains. I love my life. When's the last time you said that? Or do you complain as much as I do? I love my life. I even love my hardships. They remind me that this isn't my home. I, I even embrace my failings because it reminds me every day how much I need my Savior Jesus. Without his daily washing of my sins, I'd, I'd be a pig. The beast inside me is always trying to get out. When I get smacked down, it's a reminder. I need a Savior. This isn't my home. I'm a traveler here. I'm a pilgrim, and I'm passing through. Paul said, I've learned that. He didn't always know it. His hardships taught him resilience, gave him serenity. He said, I've learned the secret of being content." I've decided to be happy. Or as I saw once on a bumper sticker, nobody can ruin your day without your permission. Isn't that good? I've learned how to be content whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And the more my heart, my soul, my mind is connected to Jesus Christ the happier I am no matter what whether I'm flush with cash and I can pull a roll of 20's out of my my pocket or have a a bag of drachmas or denarii in in, in a leather pouch underneath my robe or as Paul often had to do where I'm asking people for lodging and food I love my life I'm serene I'm full. I'm content. Because when I'm connected to Christ, I have everything I need. I have meaning for my life. I know who I am. I know what I'm doing here. And I find fulfillment in adopting Christ's agenda as mine. He said, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only, and they were the poorest. I've seen that in my own ministry. I work in the hood in Milwaukee and have served a lot of really desperately poor people. And it puts me to shame sometimes to see the generosity with which they will take in a stray relative set another place at the table and pack one more person in whose home is in chaos and disarray and they will take in somebody from the neighborhood or a relative and say you could stay with us and i'm thinking dude you like you got hardly anything yourself and they just they have learned that serenity their hardships have not made them tight-fisted in fact sometimes the more you have the more you hold on frankly since you're talking a little bit about 90-day challenges, and, and uh, I think that Christ the healer can heal us with our attitude towards money. As Paul is saying, these people were the poorest people he served, and, they, and paradoxically, they were the most generous. Nobody ever feels like giving because everything's all in alignment. At every stage of life, you have abundant excuses to hold on a, to your money with a death grip. Basically, sending God a telegram. I don't think you can take care of me tomorrow. I'm I'm got to fend for myself. Paul said, "I can do everything through Him. who gives me strength." Think what at what age or what stage in your life, as I've been through about. Uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through my life if if I make it uh, to geezerhood, and I'm not sure where all of you are. But I. I have abundant excuses. When you're a kid, why should you give any money to anybody else or to God? Man, I'm a kid. I'm just a kid. I just make babysitting money. I got no, I got nothing. I got to hang on. I got to save. When you're a teenager, you're always broke. A teenage, man, my little car washing job. and I, Are you kidding me? I should give. When you're in college, man, I'm, I got college loans. I got debts. I got to try to pay my debts down. When you're just getting out in the world, man. I'm just starting. I don't have hardly a stick of furniture. I should, I should give. When you, when you get a spouse, you get married, you have some kids. Man, my kids. Are you kidding me? My kids are eating me out of house and home. Every, every time I turn around, they need something. And have uh, got some medical bills, you get a little bit older. Man, we're trying to buy a house. I can't give right now. I could, I could take this all the way to somebody in a nursing home. Are you kidding me? I can't give. I got a, I got. Um, Assisted living costs. You know how expensive it is to be a senior citizen around here? Frankly, every human being has excuses not to give. Paul says, give anyway. Because I'm not doing it, it's not for me, it's not my need, but it's for you. He said, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Why didn't those tightwad Thessalonians help him out? They were afraid. They had not yet been healed. I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus. He's the messenger between the two of them. The gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Here's my promise to you, Philippians. My God will meet All your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Friends in the desert, this promise of Christ is for you as well. Don't be afraid. Let the healer heal you of your hang-ups and fears about tomorrow and enjoy that serenity that Paul had. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Would you want to just say that softly with me a few times? I can do all things through him who... Gives me strength. And one more time for luck. I can do all things. Gives me strength. You believe that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, great healer, physician, uh, we fearful, sometimes fearful, sometimes stingy, sometimes broken souls come to you today grateful for loving us. Thank you for washing us clean of all our sins. But thank you for not just setting us free to run around and fend for ourselves, but you continue to help us and serve us in our lives. We are grateful for your guidance. We're grateful for your spirit, your word, your supper, your strength. Help us to believe what Paul believed. Help us to learn what Paul learned. Help us to be content in any and every situation, completely trusting that you are in charge of our tomorrows. Help us to be generous with others and with you, not counting the cost, not being afraid. Heal us of our fears. And help us to see our hardships not as disasters or signs that you've given up on us, but help us to see them as platforms through which we may give you glory and be even more useful to you. In Jesus' name, let all God's people say, amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Time of Grace and Pastor Mark Jeske, visit timeofgrace.org. To hear more messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. at Cesar Chavez High School, located at 43rd Avenue and Baseline in Phoenix, Arizona. And now, a closing blessing from Pastor Mark. How good to be with you today. Brothers and sisters, go in peace. Live in harmony with one another. Serve the Lord with gladness. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you peace. Amen.